Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. I'm joined by my producer, Trevor Biondich. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Adam. Fantastic. Howard Rheingold doesn't really need an introduction, but he's going to get one. He's a self-described communicator and artist. To me, he is more than something like an evangelist or a technology whisperer. His thoughts and opinions on technology are long-term. He's a soulful communicator. He's also the author of Smart Mobs, The Virtual Community, and Tools for Thought. We will also be joined by another interviewer today, Dr. Karadik Peters, who has followed Howard for a long time. If you would like to support the show, then follow us on Twitter at ThatInterested, at the website, which is remotely-interested.com, or at our Facebook page or our LinkedIn page. Hi, Howard. How are you? Good. Hello. How's it going? Good. Good. A little bit, little bit nervous uh, of chatting to you, but uh, very good. <laughs> this end. Please don't worry about it. Right. So, so we're all here then, are we? All right. Are we ready, Trevor? Uh, we are ready. Okay. Right. Let's get ahead. Let's get. Let's go. Uh, go ahead with it then. Okay. My name is uh, Adam Spring, and I am very pleased to um, introduce our guest for today, um, Howard Rheingold. Um, I will also be joined by Dr. Craddock Peters from the University of Plymouth, who will be also asking questions as well. So, Howard, first, how are you? Good. Fantastic. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Um, so for our audience who may not be familiar with your work, which I'm sure most people are, how would you describe yourself in terms of your career and what you've done and, you know, your, your, your role and prominence in the world of technology? Well, I started out as a writer, but I, I think since uh, there are so many other channels available now, I've thought of myself as a communicator and I'm interested in and have always been interested in the social impacts of technology, the cognitive impacts of information technology. I've always thought of personal computers as mind amplifiers since I first heard about them. So I've been writing about them for a long time, but I've also been a participant uh, as well in creating virtual communities and um, learning communities. And I've been involved in digital media and learning uh, for a number of years. And I've taught at University of California at Berkeley and at Stanford for the past 10 years. And I've, I've got a book out called uh, Net Smart, How to Thrive Online. That, that's my most recent book. Um, and probably the first book that anybody ever heard about was called The Virtual Community in 1992. Okay, and that's, yeah, coming back to um, your most recent book, you gave a presentation with your daughter at Google back in 2012, and I found it very interesting that you mentioned um, Doug Engelbart's 1962 paper. Um, you know, I've, I've always loved sort of Doug's work and things like that, and I'm interested in... Um, how, how much did sort of like Doug Engelbart's work or your connection to Doug influence what you've done in your career? Well, that's perceptive of you because I'd, I'd say that Doug Engelbart's been the, the single most important influence on my thinking and my career. I first ran into him in the, in the early 1980s when I was writing a book that's still online. Um, I was able to put it online before publishers demanded digital rights. It's called Tools for Thought. It's in 1995 um, HTML, but you can, you can read it online for free. And I was interested in that era when all the attention was on Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, 
talking about the, 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 the people who had really created what we know as personal computing. And if you begin looking into that, you get to Doug Engelbart. And Doug was still very active in the early 1980s, and I met him. And I remember driving home from that meeting thinking that um, this was the most significant person I was likely to meet in my life. And I think that that's still true. I, I, I think uh, he's much more well-known now, but few people who know of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates understand that where this all came from didn't have, didn't have much to do with profit. It had nothing to do with profit. It had to do with Doug Engelbart thinking the humans needed a, a better set of tools for thinking and problem solving around the problems that we were creating for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the stuff that he did on augmenting, you know, the collective IQ, it's even now, like, particularly, you know, it's prominent at the moment with distributed computing and things like that. And he was so, you know, the guy to me was just so ahead of his time. It was just absolutely sort of, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of his work. But sort of like following on from that is, how would you sort of like describe the importance of Vannevar Bush's 1945 article, which obviously influenced Doug? and sort of like Engelbart's work in the 60s in terms of shaping modern computing. You've kind of touched on that a little bit, but is there anything more you would actually say along those lines in terms of the, the importance of figures like that in that early post-war period? Oh, uh, absolutely. If, if you had left it to the computer industry or if you had left it to computer science as it was way back then, we wouldn't have personal computers. We'd still have these kind of cathedrals where you had to submit your program to the the programming priesthood. Uh, Bush was very influential because that article, um, as we may think, um, was visionary about the kind of devices we need in the future for everybody in the world to try to keep up with the kinds of information that was being created, uh, but also because he was the man in charge of the U.S. Uh, military science research efforts during World War II, which, of course, included both the computer and the, the atomic bomb. So he was somebody who was listened to. Doug Engelbart, he was just a sailor in the Pacific, a radar operator. Nobody ever knew who Doug Engelbart was. And he spent 10 years trying to get people to back his idea of using computers with screens to communicate with and to, and to solve problems with. Uh, people thought that was crazy. Um, he finally wrote his 1962 paper, which I recommend to everyone, um, Augmenting Human Intellect, uh, because he realized that nobody had a, a conceptual model of what it was he was talking about. People thought computers were for scientists to make scientific calculations or for um, businesses to, to create payrolls with data processing. Um, this idea was totally crazy, and he really pushed it, and he pushed it not out of profit um, and not out of to, to make a name for himself as a scientist. He was an engineer, uh, but because he thought that's what we needed. And I, and I think that a lot of uh, young innovators need to need to realize that so much of what we have now came from visionaries who wanted to create tools for themselves and for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think another one as well is, it's a slight aside, but somebody like Bob Noyce as well, who basically was, you know, the architect of Silicon Valley and was somebody that Steve Jobs looked up to, I believe. Um, you know, those are sort of the key figures. I think certainly now where we're at 
we need to start revisiting those people and start looking at those ideas that they were coming up with because now the technology is there, I think, to make it tangible. Would would you agree with that or? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, there's nothing wrong with the profit motive, but uh, in Silicon Valley, um, very near where I live, the the gold rush is very much part of the mentality. And I just don't want young people to forget that it's okay to not think about your exit strategy for your company um, if you are after something that you think is going to change the way people do things. Yep, I absolutely 100% agree. And sort of like while we're still on that, before we move on to the next thing, is have you ever explored the networks that were in place at the University of Utah in the 60s at all? You know, obviously with professors like Dave Evans, Bob Barton, and Ivan Sutherland, and then students like, you know, Ed, Ed Catmull from... Pixar, Alan Kay, who obviously, you know, came up with the idea for pretty much the iPad before it came about. And also, you know, people like Martin Newell. Have you ever looked at those networks at all? Well, you know, I did write about Alan Kay and uh, Ivan Sutherland in Tools for Thought, which was published in 1985. There's a new book coming out that's sort of like Tools for Thought on steroids by a, a much better writer. Walter Isaacson's book, The Innovators, is going to be available any day now. And he looks at some of the same people, and um, including um, Ada Lovelace, uh, who was the, the first programmer, um, that, uh, and Alan Turing, and John von Neumann, uh, names that most people don't know, but who were towering figures, um, much, much, much bigger uh, intellectually than... Um, than the, you know, the very successful and visionary entrepreneurs that most people know about. Okay. Craddock, do you have any questions at all? This is a good time to interject and bring you in. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, yeah. I, when I read the uh, virtual community um, some time ago, um, I noticed how hopeful you were for interaction and communal uh, well-being on the web. Uh, do you think now that um, presence size of the information mountain and the scale of virtual communi- communication, that, that that sort of size of the whole thing now overwhelms people, so they, they feel and act as if they're in virtual urban sprawl? Or, or is there still some sort of belief in a global village? Well, I think uh, the reason I wrote uh, Net Smart was I, I think that the, the critical uncertainty now is a matter of literacy. Um, since the, the the cabling of the world for the telegraph in the 19th century, um, the, the creation of the digital computer and the spread of the mobile telephone, we've really seen that most people in the world now have access to the technology and to the services and to the applications. But the know-how of how to use this infrastructure, I think, um, is not as... Uh, as evenly distributed or as widespread. And knowing how to deal with this flood of information, um, I call it infotension, how to manage your attention, how to find the information you want, how to ignore the information you don't want, that's a skill that people need to learn. You know, just as as, uh, most of the population were illiterate before the printing press and they needed to learn to read before the the era of science and democracy and the other creations of literate societies uh, came along in the wake of the printing press. I think that we need to now spread literacies about dealing with information. And I will note that there's a very interesting book by the name uh, 
uh, I can't remember the name of the book, by Anne Blair recently that pointed out that there were um, information, pa pa panics about information overload that happened um, when the printing press was invented. Um, and in response to that, things like indexes and editors and, and uh, dictionaries and libraries were invented or, or perfected in order to deal with the explosion of information that printing made available. We need to now invent um, tools for dealing with information, but I think also people need to learn how to deal with it. Well, yes, um, I, I, apart from just trying to quantify and trying to um, catalogue information, the other way people dealt with things in the 19th century was uh, was seeing things in, in terms of particular networks, in terms of uh, particularly things like transport and industry, uh, that they focused, rather than trying to deal with everything, they dealt with just one particular type of network. Well, uh, I'll have to say that networks, um, people think of social networks uh, in terms of Facebook, but online social networks are, are really a mediated amplifier for something that humans have done since we were humans. In, in fact, I think anthropologist uh, Rob, Robin Dunbar has written about the emergence oh, yeah. of, of human language uh, as a means of keeping track of our social networks. So social networks have always been incredibly important. When you talk about the, the railroad and the telegraph, which of course went together, that was really the beginning of this acceleration of communications, the shrinking of the of the world, and and I think also an acceleration of the the pace of life. Um, we turn to our social networks for information. Increasingly, the college students I teach um, get a lot of their news and information, not necessarily directly from the journalistic sources, but are, are directed to those by their peers through social networks. And, and I think between algorithmic tools that help us sort through information and an increased, again, literacy about how do we use our social networks to find the information we want um, and to collaborate with people, um, that's we're seeing the emergence of a new way of dealing with this ab abundance of information. You know, the term personal learning network is comes up a lot. Yes, yeah. And I think that that's so, a, so it is, a skill it, that that students ought to learn is how do they cultivate? How do they use these tools to cultivate networks who they can learn from? Yes, yeah, so so it is. It's very, it's very much focused around groups of people, the groups of people working in similar sort of things, or well, there's a, so a difference between yeah. a network and a group. When you think of a group, you usually think of the the tightly bound and and, uh, and yes. close, closely bounded group in which everybody knows each other, and there aren't very many people from outside the group. In a yes. network, um, I know the person who. Um, cuts my hair, and I know my students. My students and the person who cuts my hair don't know each other, but they're both part of my network. Um, we 
for most of human history, people have lived in these tightly bounded groups. Communication and transportation technologies have enabled us to enlarge our networks to include many people who don't know each other and also many people who are not inside the boundaries of our our core group. And so we're, you know, we're dealing with the effects of that. I think modernity is about that. In the mm -hmm. 19th century, when people started leaving their villages and farms and went to cities and factories, there was a lot of turmoil about that kind of social change. We are still dealing with the turmoil from that kind of social change, and it has its negative and its positive aspects to it all, I'll, I'll have to say generally about all the things that we're talking about is that communication media amplify human capabilities and human proclivities. And some of those are beneficial um, and some of those are destructive. Okay. I mean, I find this, I mean, I find this quite interesting from the point of view, because I'm now sort of like a Brit now living in the US. So in one respect, I'm kind of a little bit culturally off center. And you've obviously, there's a couple of things I want to sort of bring up, but You've, you've worked heavily on things like dashboards. And obviously dashboards are things that are used as a learning tool. They're used socially. Um, but now they're also being used in a corporate capacity as well. And one thing I've noticed on the corporate angle, certainly in the US, is that basically your social life is now trying to be tied to a brand. You know, say, for instance, like with integrated retail, it's going from basically just one transaction to trying to basically to get people to have some sort of personal relationship with that actual brand. You know, so, yeah, in terms of dashboards and information filtering, where do you see that sort of stuff going? Um, well, I call it infotension. It's a combination of uh, training your attention to focus on the things that are, are the, the highest quality information that are most closely related to what you want to know and uh, learning not to be distracted by all the rest of it but also the skill at using the various tools that are available to us. So there's something called RSS for really simple syndication that probably most people don't know about. I find that my students who are pretty sophisticated, most of them don't know about it. It's a way of subscribing to the information flows coming from people's blogs or Twitter accounts that, that are of interest to you rather than hunting for the information, having it come to you and doing it in a way that you can arrange it in what's called a, an RSS aggregator or newsreader, so that you can see the headlines, you can quickly scan the information, you can pay attention to the information that's the most relevant to you and ignore the rest of it. Learning how to create these dashboards for yourself and to, to combine them with your kind of attentional discipline, um, I think is a very Im important uh, skill. That's one of the things that I teach my students. It's Again, we could probably just have a conversation about this. Most of the skills that we're talking about, informational and attentional skills, but also social network skills, skills on trying to determine which of the information you find is good information and which of it is bad information, none of these have really um, entered the schooling system. Educational institutions change much more slowly than uh, than technology does, people aren't taught how to search and to verify what they find in school. And yet we live in a world in which most people are able to ask any question they want and get a whole lot of answers, some of which are, are good and some of which are bad, within a, within a second. 
Um, so I see a real gap again. I keep getting back to this theme of literacy, but there's a gap between the capabilities that are available to the knowledgeable individual and the knowledge of how to use those capabilities, including things like da dashboards. Okay. And sort of what's your opinion of things like the, the Internet of Things and the Third Industrial Revolution and, you know, this move towards what could be seen as a, a, a symbiotic web? I guess what Sherry Turkle called, you know, a second or digital self and things like that. How do you think this is tying into your ideas of infotension and things like that? Well, you know, I wrote a book in 2000 that was published in 2002 called Smart Mobs, yep. in which I, I, I wrote about the future of the era of sentient things. And in a sense, that's what we're seeing with the Internet of Things. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of magic, a lot of things that we would like to happen. You can do with a wave of your hand or by looking at something. But I think there's, there's also going to be a lot of magical thinking. What, what if you are a two-year-old and the doorknob on a room opens when you approach because that doorknob recognizes you? That two-year-old doesn't know that that doorknob only knows how to recognize uh, the, the two-year-old. It doesn't know everything else. So um, I think we're going to live in a kind of a somewhat magical but also somewhat haunted world. And sometimes things are not going to work and nobody's going to know why. And we're beginning to experience some of that. So um, that was what I thought, uh, what... Um, 13 years ago, and I think we're, we're just beginning to head into that era, and I haven't really tracked it a lot since then. Okay, so also you've done a lot of work uh, with things like Arduino and open software and open hardware and things like that. Um, would you like to talk a little bit more about sort of like the importance of things like Arduino and Raspberry Pi and things like that from a from a teaching point of view or from a, a learning point of view? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to describe um, what a breakthrough it is to be able to build your own computer for about $35, um, the, the Raspberry Pi. Um, I'm um, an artist, and I can now make lights light up. I can make my art make sounds. I can wave my hand in front of it and have it react because I'm using an inexpensive hardware controller platform called Arduino that was created to enable people to make things move, make things light up, uh, make things uh, sense the environment. You can put in infrared and radar and, and chemical sensors in these things. And, and again, that's only about $25 for an Arduino. So now I think it's possible for lots of, of young people, and it's important, I think, to include as, as many females as possible in learning to, to love uh, tinkering and engineering in, in actually being the authors of and not just the consumers of the technology they use. I think um, it's not just about creating innovations that affect everybody. It's about having some control over technology and not just being a, a victim of technology, so I'm very excited about um, personally being able to create things using Arduino and Raspberry Pi that I just couldn't afford to create, and that I wouldn't be able to learn how to create. There are wonderful systems of learning around all of these technologies, and um, and they're free. 
Uh, so I, it's a, a wonderful um, uh, opportunity. And I'm going to have to, to sign off very quickly. Thanks for this opportunity to talk to your listeners and uh, uh, let me know when this podcast is available and I'll help, help spread the word. Wonderful. Can I ask you one more question okay. before we go, though? Just one more very question. Very quickly, yes. Okay. If there are five resources, it could be anything, a book, um, a website, anything like that, that you would basically tell the listeners to go away and look at, what would those five things be? Or just up to five things? Well, you can find an, an awful lot of stuff on my website. That's Rheingold.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm H. Rheingold. I, again, I think that Walter Isaacson's book that's coming out now um, is pretty important. It's called The Innovators. And my most recent book, uh, Net Smart, How to Thrive Online, um, about those literacies I was talking about. I don't know whether that's five, but those are what I think of off the top of my head. I set up to five and it's good. And because it's you, that's fine by me. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Howard. I really Thank appreciate you. it. You have a great day. Thank okay, you. Bye. Bye, Cheers. Bye. Bye. Well, that was great. And I would just like to thank Howard for basically his time and also for answering all of the questions that we uh, that we obviously asked him. So, Craddock, what did you think of that? It's great. I'm really excited by it. Learned a lot from it. Yeah, I mean, I thought that his point about RSS feeds was very interesting. And I have to admit something that, you know, I myself have ignored. So, you know, what, what do you think of that? Yes, I mean, it's one of those things that uh, some of us probably have almost forgotten about and other, others uh, are too young to, to remember it starting. Um, the RSS feed, a rich site summary feed, um, in case you don't know what it is, um, for those listening, uh, it'll actually say on on a site RSS feed, or it might have a little orange box with a with a dot in the bottom left hand corner with some waves coming out of it, um, and uh, <clears throat> you can you can use that to ensure not just. Where you, you visit the site once, but any time new information comes up, it'll be sent to you. Um, but you don't even have to wait passively for for that to come to you, you or to look for sites which um, uh, which have RSS feeds. There are ways of setting up ones for sites that don't uh, that uh, don't have them. But you can Google that or YouTube it and find lots of help. Yeah, and I I would definitely agree for someone who is just a student who's looking to actually get into this um, realm of data science for his next degree, I have to say information in a, a network aspect, having that RSS feed type of thing um, is really probably beneficial. He was right. We have access to a lot of information. It's refining that, asking, is this a good source? and not and rss feeds are a good way of kind of getting into what is being said in my network that i'm subscribing to and i think that is a very crucial thing for young students like me to actually know about yeah and i think in addition to that as well it's also you know in terms of mindset and accessibility um certainly an accessibility coming from you know the point of view of you know howard and what he really does is it shows that dashboards are not that difficult to do. They are easy to actually be able to create and to be able to filter information and make your experience, you know, a little bit more intuitive. And also, again, coming back to digital technologies, it feeds in with this idea that 
as audiences, we've now shifted from passive to active. You know, we no longer basically have to just sit back and, you know, just consume it. We can actually give our feedback instantaneously back to other other members within that audience or within that community. Would you agree with that, Karadik? Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, I did ask him about um, the whole thing of uh, groups. Perhaps I didn't express it uh, so well, but I mean, he talked a little bit about uh, students uh, helping each other put these things together. How to uh, how to use networks, a bit like in the the old days, people learning about things like uh, trains or or use of um, of technologies like the uh, the telegraph, those sort of uh, linear sort of um, networks. That um, yes, of course. I mean, as he said, it's not about a group in the the sense that we might think of a a group of friends around and a table chatting. Uh, everyone has their own networks. Everyone constructs their own uh, networks. Uh, but we, you know, when we're trying to start up, we we obviously have to learn all the techniques that have to how to access these things. And that's what a lot of his his um, help videos and information. He does a lot of uh, stuff on, on internet, and and uh, you can see uh, onto his website there are various links to his videos, which instruct you about these kind of things. Yep. And I think on that note, that's a great point to wrap up. I think it was a fantastic interview. Howard is obviously always welcome back. I hope you, the listener, enjoyed it. And it's goodbye from me. Trevor, you good? Yep. It's goodbye from Trevor and Karadik. Are you good? Yeah, great. Thanks. And it's goodbye thanks from Karadik. Oh, well, thank you for being on. Okay. So until next time, I'll see you soon. The Remotely Interested podcast is listener supported. You can support indirectly by following the links at remotely-interested.com or you can support directly by becoming a sponsor of the show. If you would like to become a sponsor of the show, follow the links on the remotely-interested.com website. Hello, sticker lovers. Stickerrobot.com is your place, your one go-to to basically get stickers for your business. Sticker Robot has done stickers for Google. They've done stickers for Facebook. They've even done stickers for Hot Wheels. If you need stickers for anything in any walk of life, go to stickerrobot.com.